Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood at the U.N. Climate Summit in Cancun, Mexico. Mexico's president tells delegates from 194 nations, we have to change the way we do things or climate change will change us. The prime minister of Norway says changing climate change begins in the forest. Without any doubt, addressing deforestation is the way we can have the largest, the fastest and the cheapest reductions in emissions of carbon dioxide. But for developing nations already confronting the effects of climate change, time and money are running short. So far, the fast start finance has neither been fast nor has it started, and there has hardly been any finance. That and more from Cancun this week on Living on Earth. No te vayas. Stay with us. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the UN Climate Summit in Cancun, Mexico, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the Mexican United States. The pomp and security was what you'd expect under the circumstances. Delegations from more than 190 nations had come to Cancun to deal with a planetary crisis, climate change. But security was so strict that many who had planned to attend the first day session were stuck in a two-hour checkpoint traffic jam. But by the end of the first week of the conference, many had found their way to see Mexican President Felipe Calderon talk about the importance of forests in the fight against climate change. Calderon got a standing ovation. President Calderon told the crowd, we have to change the way we do things or climate change will change us. Two dozen heads of state and government attended the Cancun summit, but one was conspicuously absent. Peasant farmers and their supporters held a press conference and demonstration to protest the U.N. climate talks, calling on U.S. President Barack Obama to stand up for indigenous rights, fearful that a negotiated treaty to curb greenhouse gases would come at the expense of those who had protected the environment for so long but had profited the least. In the wake of the failure of last year's climate talks in Copenhagen to reach a binding agreement, U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon told delegates in Cancun time is running out. We are here for one reason, to protect people and the planet from the uncontrolled climate change. Nature will not wait while we negotiate. The time for waiting while keeping one eye on everyone else is over. Time is also running out for the UN climate conference process itself. This is the 16th COP, or Convention of the Parties, the 16th annual meeting where the nations of the world have tried to seal a deal on greenhouse gas emissions and their effects. It's a process that requires consensus by all 190-plus countries attending the meeting. 
Duncan Marsh is Director of International Climate Policy with the Nature Conservancy. We are facing the risk that countries are going to walk away from this process under the UN to deal with climate change. And that's not optimal. For a global problem like climate change, we need a global solution where all nations are acting together. Unlike the high expectations for last year's climate meeting in Copenhagen, where a final agreement was anticipated, the hopes for the talks here in Cancun were decidedly lower, designed to shore up confidence in the UN process, building on the one issue where negotiators had worked out most differences. RED, the UN mechanism for reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, putting a price on the carbon in trees so they're worth more left standing than cut down. Rosalind Reeve is head of the forest team at London-based NGO Global Witness. It really felt as if everybody engaged in RED was, was converging towards one point, that we really were coming towards a, a consensus. But that consensus seems to be somewhat fractured. An agreement on RED was on the fast track in Cancun. Stopping deforestation and replanting trees is considered the quickest way to reduce climate change in gases. It's an amount equal to that emitted by all the vehicles in the world. Red is especially important for countries like Indonesia, home to the world's third largest tropical forest. Kantoro Mangkusuburoto, head of Indonesia's Red program, cautioned climate negotiators to slow down and get the complex Red mechanism right. We are introducing a new paradigm of development. So although we want this to happen very fast in Indonesia, we have to be very careful. Potentially at stake is hundreds of billions of dollars in red forest credits. Many indigenous groups and nations, including Bolivia and Cuba, oppose turning the carbon entries into a commodity that can be bought and sold to offset industrial emissions. They believe developed nations should cut their greenhouse gases first. But supporters of a market-based mechanism say it's the only way to raise enough money to fund red. For billionaire financier George Soros, there's gold in them, their trees. It has to be preservation, but it has to be a model of economic development. So I'm ready to invest in it, and I think private enterprise has to play a major role. Among nations, Norway is the biggest supporter of red. It's put more than $2 billion on the table for the forest-saving scheme, funding it with revenues from North Sea oil. Jens Stoltenberg, prime minister of Norway, says the nation's leaders have also paid a high cost in political capital as well. We are a major oil exporter, but we tax petroleum extremely high. And it's hard to win elections on the message of high taxation. And therefore, I'm very much dependent on success to show the Norwegian voters that they are getting something back. A major sticking point in the red negotiations in Cancun was verification. Donor nations want to make sure the carbon locked in trees stays in the forests. Norway says it gave $250 million to the World Bank to fund red programs in Guyana. But Barat Jagdeo, president of the South American nation, says Guyana saved the trees. Now show it the money. We have decided, we've taken the tough political decision to pledge our entire forest with the hope that we'll get money or assistance to develop alternatives. And frankly speaking, we have not seen a single cent. Success for the climate talks in Cancun will be measured incrementally when the U.N. looks to the summit next year in Durban, South Africa. And as the Cancun meeting wound down, Rosalind Reeve of Global Witness reflected on the speed of the process. What's important is that we get the rules right, and it's better to wait 
than have a bad deal here. Money and lots of it. In fact, a hundred billion dollars of it every year come 2020 to help compensate for the lack of a binding agreement to cut emissions coming out of last year's Copenhagen summit. The U.S. and other wealthy countries made that big pledge. It's for developing countries to adapt to a changing climate and grow with less carbon. Jens Stoltenberg, Prime Minister of Norway, is the co-chair of a high-level panel that was commissioned to prime negotiators in Cancun with practical ideas to meet those promises. It is challenging but feasible to mobilize the hundred billion we agreed on in Copenhagen. The advisory panel includes heads of state and finance experts, bankers, international financier George Soros, and White House economic chief Lawrence Summers. The key to getting to a hundred billion dollars a year, says Prime Minister Stoltenberg, is a price for carbon of no less than twenty to twenty-five dollars a ton, and the higher it is. The better the investment climate for developing countries, especially the potential of auctioning emission allowances, we estimate that that can mobilize about 30 billion U.S. dollars annually. We look into the potential of introducing some kind of carbon pricing for international aviation, international ship that can provide about 10 billion U.S. dollars. And we look into the potential related to reallocating money going for subsidizing fossil fuels in the developed world that can raise around 10 billion U.S. dollars. You enumerated 50 billion, but there's another 50 billion to go. Where do you expect to get that? From other sources, the, the reason why I mentioned this 50 billion、uh, was just to illustrate how big the potential is connected to carbon pricing. Prime Minister Stoltenberg went on to mention traditional foreign aid and private financing, helped by the World Bank and its regional partners. U.S. Envoy Todd Stern came to Cancun to say the U.S. is keeping its Copenhagen promises, including pitching in to a fund of $30 billion right away over three years, so-called fast-track money. We have secured approximately $1.7 billion worth of climate assistance in our first year of fast-start financing. That will support adaptation activities for the most vulnerable countries around the world, combat deforestation in the world's most biologically diverse tropical forests, and help put countries on a path toward low-carbon development. Again, this is just the first of three years, and we will be looking to increase that amount in each of the next two years. But fast track has come under fire for simply shuffling foreign aid from one category to another. Rather than providing new funds, Jeram Ramesh, Environmental Minister for India, spoke for many developing countries. So far, the fast start finance has neither been fast nor has it started, and there has hardly been any finance. In fiscal year 2010, the total commitment of the United States to fast start finance is 1.7 billion dollars, which does no justice to the world's preeminent economic power. The problem, said Bharat Jagdeo, the president of Guyana, is that the U.S. has no mandatory cap on carbon itself, and without a cap, there is nothing to auction or tax. He asked Americans in Cancun to carry home a message. I ask you this as a favor. 
I was a member of the AG, um, the advisory group on financing, the high-level group that the Secretary General put together that the Prime Minister of Norway chaired. Could you please give President Obama a copy of that executive summary? The copy says that we can raise $100 billion by 2020 easily if we have the right price signal, which is the only sustainable form for keeping this initiative going, particularly now when most countries are in a state where they're not going to provide money. And that is why we have this dubious form of accounting on their fast track financing, double counting, counting aid money, loopholes, all of this and very glossy brochures about how fast-track financing has been dispersed. As some UN summit pundits like to say, climate protection in the developing world is spelled finance. But loans and donations require good faith, and as UN climate negotiations drag toward the end of a second decade without worldwide limits on carbon emissions, it's not only polar ice that's disappearing, it's also trust. ahead, damming a river without water. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman at the United Nations Climate Talks in Cancun, Mexico, where extreme weather around the world this year has given urgency to the negotiations. In Pakistan, an epic monsoon left a fifth of the country underwater. In Russia, a searing heat wave ignited massive forest fires. And in Brazil's Amazon basin, a record drought dried up many of the rivers that sustain the biologically rich rainforest. Tropical ecologist Dan Nepstad is director of international programs at EPOM, the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. It's, uh, it's about as bad as we've seen. I've been working in, in the Amazon for about 25 years now, and I haven't seen anything like it. We thought we uh, had the worst drought of the century in 2005, and... Uh, this one's worse. That drought in 2005 was called the, the once-in-a-century drought. That's five years ago. I know. And, you know, there's a drought in 2007 that didn't even capture any media attention. It wasn't even worth it because drought is really becoming part of the fabric of the Amazon. And that affects everything from when you plant your crops to whether or not forests are going to catch fire or not to whether or not you can use your canoe or boat to get to school or the market or the the nearest big city. So what do you think is causing this drought? You know, statistically, it's just very hard to take an individual event like this mega drought of the Amazon and say that it's a direct cause of climate change. But with both this and the 2005 and the 2007 drought, they're all consistent with the scenario of of increasing accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. How does the drought affect the rainforest? And, and I guess, how does the rainforest then affect the drought? The forest actually makes the rain in the Amazon. By the end of the dry season, a lot of Amazon trees are sucking water from the soil. It could be 60 feet beneath the ground surface. So they're going way down deep to get that water 
so that they can keep their green, lush canopy even though they've been deprived of water for a few months. And that water going into the atmosphere makes the clouds that make the rain. Uh, Similarly, the rain coming down, if it weren't for that rain, if those dry seasons got longer on a permanent basis, then that forest would cease to be. It would be replaced by grassy vegetation, savannas, woodlands, and scrub that would burn periodically and that would look very different and have, have far fewer species. These droughts are drying up the rivers. The rivers also drive hydroelectric dams, and Brazil has a very ambitious program to build, what, 50, 60 dams in the Amazon. How would these droughts affect them? If you get droughts coming in on top of deforestation, you get much less production of energy. And that's the scenario that really isn't taken into account when the big planners of of the um, hydroelectric dams uh, plan these projects. There are many other dams planned for the Madeira, which also has a great deal of vulnerability to climate change. So if rainfall breaks down and and is inhibited, uh, the, the big energy supplies that are counted on from these dams will be um, suppressed during the dry season. Dan Nebstad is with the Amazon Environmental Research Institute. Though droughts are becoming more frequent and intense in the Amazon, Brazil is going full steam ahead with plans to build hydroelectric dams throughout the region. Brazil's economy is booming, and energy planners want to prevent power outages like the one last fall that left nearly a third of the country without electricity. And they desperately need to keep the lights on when Brazil hosts the World Cup in 2014 and the Olympics two years later. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom traveled to the Amazon, where one of the major hydro projects is in the works. And she has our report from the Madeira River. From Porto Velho in the southwestern corner of the Amazon, the best, sometimes the only way to get around is by riverboat. A tree cut lengthwise serves as a squeaky footbridge between the shore and a floating dock on the Madeira River. Tied to the dock is a double-decker riverboat with peeling white paint and blue trim. A satellite dish sits on the roof, a group of men play pool, and hammocks swing in the breeze. The first thing we do on the rivers of the Amazon, here in Rondonia, is ask permission to the river for us to navigate on. Ivanede Cordoza is petite with long, wavy black hair. Her father was a rubber tapper, and she grew up in the forest with her family. Today, she is head of Canada, an environmental NGO working to protect the Madeira River. She folds her hands together in prayer and speaks directly to the river. Rio Madeira... Rio Madeira, I want to ask you permission to come and do my work here and navigate on your waters. Thank you, River. Even AJ leads the way across the riverboat to a small aluminum skiff tied up in the baking sun. We pull on bright orange life jackets and sit down carefully on the hot metal seats. Fish biologist Marco Lima is my translator in Brazil. You sit down here and then I'll sit in the back. Okay. Watch out, it's really hot. We head up the largest tributary of the largest river in the world. The Madeira begins at the foot of the Andes Mountains in Bolivia and flows northwest to join the Amazon 2,000 miles away. Madeira means wood in Portuguese, and we watch huge tree trunks float by. 
During the rainy season, the river flows so fast that it erodes the banks and pulls giant rainforest trees out by their roots. The biodiversity of the Madeira River is legendary. More than 800 species of birds, 33 species of mammals, and 750 species of fish. Giant catfish and piranha, freshwater sawfish with long toothed bills. Even A.J. Cordoza scans the water and sees something exciting. A big uh, red dolphin, pink dolphin. Like many of the species here, the endangered pink river dolphin is only found in the Amazon. Five miles upriver, we've gone as far as we're permitted. Marco ties the skiff to a log at the bottom of the riverbank. Just ahead, big pickup trucks dump load after load of giant rocks into the river, the foundation of the Santo Antonio Dam. As you can see, what they're starting to do here is just simply starting the damming of the Hallwood River. Seven miles upriver, another dam, the Girao, is quickly growing as well. Together, the two dams should produce over 6,400 megawatts of electricity, roughly enough energy for all the homes in a city the size of Boston. The government created several short films to sell the dams to the public. The Santo Antonio and Girao dams on the Madeira River are important parts of the national effort to produce more energy so the country grows. We need more energy for industry, agriculture, houses, and schools. We cannot develop without energy. About 80% of Brazil's electricity comes from hydropower. So Brazil has a lot of experience with building dams, though not always successfully. 25 years ago, the Balbina Dam, to power the city of Manaus, flooded nearly a thousand square miles of rainforest. The decaying vegetation there produced massive amounts of the powerful greenhouse gas methane, yet the dam generated only 112 megawatts of electricity. That would power about 33,000 U.S. homes. But Santo Antonio Energia says the Santo Antonio Dam will be different. Ricardo Ovis is the sustainability manager. Of all the hydro plants in Brazil, this will have the least impact. For six years, we've had consultants coming from several institutions in Brazil. They told us what we needed to do to minimize the possible future impacts. Yet even A.J. Cordoza remains skeptical. What we want is development, yes, but development that respects the people, human rights, and the environment. With this dam, there will be incredible deforestation and such a big impact on the indigenous people and riverine people who live along the river. Many people living along the river depend on it for their food. It's one of the rivers in Amazonia that has the most fish. Philip Fernside is an ecologist with IMPA, the Brazilian National Institute for Research in the Amazon. He's tall, lanky, and has a thick gray mustache that covers his entire mouth. It supplies the baby fish and the whole system. That's important for the fish that breed in the headwaters of the Madeira and then go downstream into the main part of the Amazon and grow to their huge size. The giant Amazonian catfish can grow up to 9 feet long and 600 pounds. They are literally man-eaters, infamous for tearing legs and arms off scuba divers and swimmers. From the mouth of the Amazon at the Atlantic Ocean, adult catfish swim the length of the Madeira to the Andes Mountains to breed. It's 3,000 miles against the current. 
The developers plan to build channels around the dams for catfish and other migratory species to pass through. Nobody knows if that will work or not. Again, Philip Fernside. No one's done that with these catfish before. It's not like salmon or trout or something that people have a lot of experience with. Unlike salmon or trout, catfish are bottom dwellers, and scientists just don't know how they'll navigate through a fish channel. So, it's likely that they won't make it past these these barriers. But even if they do, if they make it up into Peru and Bolivia and breed, the larvae, the, the baby fish, will come floating down the river. When they get to the turbines, they'll be sucked through the turbines because they won't be swimming around the edge through this side channel. Another danger for any fish that do survive is mercury poisoning. Thirty years ago, the Madera River basin was brimming with gold miners. They used mercury to separate out the gold and threw the waste into the river. Mercury settles to the bottom unless rushing water from a dam turns it up. Researchers already see elevated levels of mercury in many communities that depend on river fish for food. A World Wildlife Fund video titled "The Madera River: Life Before the Dams" documents the lives of indigenous tribes like the Parinchinchin who live along the river. Today, the supermarket for the Indians is the river. The non-Indians in the city goes to the market to buy a kilo of beef or fish. And when they build this dam, what happens to the culture of the Indian whose livelihood is fishing? Is somebody going to bring food here? No, nobody will. A hundred miles upstream from the Santo Antonio Dam is the non-indigenous community of Mentum Parana. The supermarket is in the center of town, where several dirt roads meet. Shoppers bustle in and out, buying fruit juice, pasta, and vegetables. Jose Fidemaya has owned this store for 32 years. When the dam's finished, the village will disappear underwater, and Fidemaya and his customers will move to a new town the government is building for them. My expectation is to be really cool, because we're expecting to move for better. Jose bags a few canned goods for Francisca, a regular customer. He uses a calculator to figure out her total, then flips through a spiral-bound notebook to find her name. Let me tell you the way I do. I I simply buy, and uh, whatever people can pay me, they pay. Uh, whatever they can't pay, they pay me at the end of the month when they receive their salaries. So, will you take that same business model with you to the new community? No, no, no. So I oh no! Right over there, I'm going to use a computer. I'm going to finish terminate this book right here. His customer, Francisca, says she's also looking forward to the move. For me, I think it will be better. Life here is not easy. This area has a lot of malaria. We suffer a lot in this place. I'm not going to miss it. But not everyone in Mentum Parana is eager to pack their bags. Maria Jose sits on the back porch with her dog, facing the garden. Inside, her children watch a TV game show. This place is so peaceful by the river. I have a lot of memories from this place. But we have to leave. We are obligated. The outgoing president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, has an 80% approval rating. He's made development, jobs, and dam construction the hallmarks of his administration. We are building a hydroelectric dam that is a model for the world, and we will continue building. Our most important concern is the Brazilian people. Brazilians love Lula, but many observers see a conflict of interest. 
Brazil's largest construction company, Odebrecht, is pouring the concrete on the Madeira River. The company also poured a lot of money into President Lula's campaign fund. Lula's handpicked successor, Dilma Rousseff, shares Lula's ambitions for Brazil. She recently won the presidential election, but earlier in her career, she was head of the agency that approved projects like the Madeira River dams. It is necessary to realize our potential. If we think of our country as small, it will stay small. Or we can think big, for example, the hydroelectric dams. At first, IBAMA, Brazil's version of the EPA, denied approval for the dams, saying the environmental review was inadequate. Lula's government ordered IBAMA to approve the dams anyway. The director of the agency at the time was forced to resign, and a few months later, IBAMA gave the green light, stipulating 33 changes to mitigate environmental damage. Cesar Guimarães is chief of IBAMA in the state of Hondonia, where the Madeira River dams are being built. Political pressures will always exist, but we need to remember that we need a clean environment to live well. I wonder if you ever feel um, threatened to, to do what people want you to do in terms of approving the dam project. I love my job, but this threat is not only to me, but the other agents and the institution. But it's my duty. After we stopped recording, Guimarães' cell phone rang. He didn't answer it. He says he often doesn't answer his phone because it could be a death threat. His job, enforcing environmental law, busting illegal loggers and poachers, makes him unpopular. Many in the scientific community said the environmental impact statement Obama finally signed off on is still inadequate. Research scientist Philip Fernside. The environmental impact process had virtually no effect on the actual decision of whether they were going to make the dam or not. That is... They'd already decided to make it before they even had the information about what impacts there would be. And uh, the reports themselves don't cover a lot of the major impacts very well. Fernside says the Environmental Review only examined impacts upstream of the dams and stopped at the Bolivian border. It didn't consider floods on the Bolivian side of the river, the methane the dam would create, or how ecosystems and communities downstream will be affected. And Fernside says the government sold the dams to the Brazilian people under false pretenses. One gets the impression that this electricity is, is going to be lighting the light bulb in your house and your television set and so forth, but that's really a very small part of it. A lot of this electricity is going for making aluminum, for example, that's exported to the rest of the world. A Brazilian smelter can use as much energy as a city of a million people. In the end, Fernside says the benefits might not outweigh the costs. Nobody's counted up all of these impacts of, of these dams that are destroying the fisheries, you're emitting greenhouse gases, all of these things. You have to add all these things up and compare them with what Brazil's getting in benefits. The Madeira River dams are just two of 60 such projects planned for the Brazilian Amazon, part of a huge international development to connect the countries of South America with paved roads and waterways so export goods like soy can be transported to the coasts more cheaply. Back in Hondonia, the Madeira River continues to flow freely to the Atlantic Ocean, just as it has since the Andes Mountains rose up 10 million years ago. But not for much longer. Construction of the Girao and Santo Antonio dams continues around the clock, and they'll both be finished within two years.
for Living on Earth. I'm Bobby Bascom in Porto Velho, Brazil. ahead, heading deep into the Yucatan forest in search of chewing gum. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. From the Cancun Climate Summit, it's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Kellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood. With consumption increasing and world population and temperatures rising, the danger is rising of shocks to the food supply. Crop yields fell by 30% seven years ago in France during a heat wave that also killed more than 14,000. And subsistence agriculture that 70% of the people in the developing world depend upon is even more vulnerable to extreme weather. But according to Inger Anderson, the Vice President of Sustainable Development at the World Bank, the world need not descend into widespread famine if action is taken now. As the population is rising, the 9 billion people that we will have by 2050, we need to increase the productivity of the agricultural sector by about two and a quarter times. That's huge, but it's also doable. But that means that we need to bring together research, we need to bring together efficiencies, and we need to look at carbon-positive agriculture. Agriculture can no longer be about expanding, but it must be about more crop per drop, more crop per square inch, and being smarter and wiser about the way we grow and consume our foods. What are some of the most important sustainable ways to increase crop yields? Now I'm talking about poor farmers. This poor farmer who lives on a hilltop in Ethiopia at 4,000 meters above sea level in scorching summers and very cold nights, he or she will want to see that the soil erosion that they have experienced where the trees are gone, so the soil depth is very thin. They need to find ways that they can bring back soil fertility to some of these soils. And what does that look like? It looks like you plant some trees. It looks like you ensure that the dung from the cows are collected and spread out on the farms. It looks like you make sure that the kind of species you grow are not those that deplete the soils, but rather are those that enrich the soils. These are the kind of things that need to happen, but not on a small pilot scale. They need to be scaled up. When you see what I have seen, what was, you could describe it as a moon landscape with a few rocks and a little house and nothing more, and a soil depth that is maybe not more than 10, 20 inches, transformed over a five to seven year period, where you also ensure that your small goats and your small sheep don't run, that you have them in one enclosed area, so you cut and carry, as they call it, the grass, and you ensure that you do some landscaping and some terracing, and you intercrop 
it is a landscape completely transformed. You would not believe what you would see from prior to post. And so there are answers, but there are answers that for that very poor family needs a little help. Let's talk about the World Bank for a moment. World Bank means money, lots of money, but how much money for sustainable agriculture? So we've been increasing our agricultural lending and support over the last uh, six years. In fact, we've increased it rapidly. In Africa alone, we've doubled it. It now is about one billion a year for Africa, just to give you an example. The reason being that there's a great demand. We respond to client countries that ask for our support. And there is a clarity also that it is agriculture that deals with the whole supply chain from farm to fork. Our partner countries are asking us increasingly for support to ensure that the markets function, that the border crossings function, that the roads are there, that the ports are there, because otherwise you find that productivity has gone up, but that it cannot be actually distributed. People listening to us who are perhaps engaged on food in the United States will think of organic, local How does this apply to what you at the World Bank are are bringing to the world food supply? Well, most of the poor people, in fact, are growing. Much of their agriculture is organic because they do not have the funds or the means to buy expensive chemicals. In Europe, the U.S. and other places where people are wealthier and where we find that there's a demand on um, local foods, I think that that's a wonderful thing you'll find the most poor people are already buying local foods. Well, I want to thank you for taking this time. Inger Anderson is Vice President for Sustainable Development at the World Bank. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Cancun's white powder beach only seems to stretch forever. Earlier this year, 15 miles of sand had to be brought in and the beach completely rebuilt after a storm washed Cancun's sand into the Caribbean Sea. And scientists warn global warming is melting the polar ice caps, threatening low-lying places like Cancun. The rising tide is in sight, but for most of the 4 million tourists who come to Cancun each year for sun, sand, and fun... Climate change is largely out of mind. That's my first time here from the United States. It's absolutely gorgeous. The water's really, really nice. Been treated extremely well. Brooms are nice. And it's just, it's beautiful to be sitting out here. I love it. The United Nations Climate Summit was held in the sprawling Moon Palace Hotel Complex on Cancun's beach. They call it the Mayan Riviera. But if you're looking for authentic Mayan culture, this place may as well be on the moon. To see the real thing, I traveled with three van loads of international journalists covering the UN climate negotiations. It was a five-hour journey and a world away from Cancun, deep into the Yucatan jungle. All right, here we are walking through the, the forest. This is a deciduous forest, so there's a lot of leaves and underbrush, but it's a very, very dense forest. The forest is thick with mahogany and cedar, twisted vines, thin scrawny trees, and soaring evergreens. Tarzan would feel right at home here. But at a clearing in the woods, there's an unexpected sight. It's a full-blown press event. Right here, in the middle of a semi-tropical jungle, 
in the middle of the Yucatan Peninsula. Mi nombre es Arquímedes Hernández. This is Arquímedes Hernández. He's going to help us with the organization of the event and he's going to conduct you to the different parts of this area. Dozens of Mayan forest people have gathered to welcome the visiting reporters. Each of us gets a baseball cap with a logo in Mayan, advertising their community agricultural project. 70% of Mexico's vast forest areas owned by indigenous communities called ejidos, or cooperatives. This ejido called San Antonio Tuck has 159 members. They communally own 15,000 acres of forest, home to anteaters, parrots, boa constrictors, and jaguar. Four years ago, the Mexican federal government began paying ejidoistas about $12 an acre a year to inventory their trees, helping the Maya to get ready for red, the UN plan to reduce carbon emissions from deforestation and degradation. The main objective of San Antonio took with these projects is that uh, they want to have more economic support and they are having like projects that are helping them to preserve their traditions. With this project, they also hope to reduce the emissions from forest deforestation and degradation. The two goals, preserving the ancient Mayan culture and the forest, is why the members of Ejido San Antonio took support RED, Besides the federal money the community receives from managing the forest in a sustainable way, replanting trees and repairing damaged land, they hope to be able to trade the carbon stored in the trees to industrialized countries that want to offset their emissions. It's economic development designed to lift the Maya from subsistence farming. Eighty-year-old Catalina Brazenia Lope remembers what it was like when the community was forced by famine to move to this part of the forest 60 years ago. She says that when she came in here, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. They had to build everything, not only the road. And she says the only one path they had would be for the horses carrying the chewing gum. That was it. You heard right, chewing gum. The natural latex gum found in the Chica Zapata tree here on the Yucatan was once the most profitable forest product from these forests. The Mayan call it Oro Blanco, white gold. A chiclero harvests the gum from the tree the way it's been done for generations. He straps on pollos, spurs on his feet, wraps a thick rope around the tree in himself and inches up hacking the bark with his machete just deep enough in a Z pattern so the sap flows into a canvas bag on the ground. The thick latex is boiled and shaped into 10-kilo bricks. The Maya Chicleros used to sell their white gold to U.S. chewing gum companies, but in the 1950s, manufacturers began switching to latex made from petrochemicals, and the value of natural gum and the latex trees sank. Today, organic chicle is just a fraction of a fraction of the $19 billion a year chewing gum industry. But an association of ejidos is trying to revive the traditional forest product. A kilo of organic natural gum goes for 55 pesos, about $5. The ejidos sell it to a European manufacturer. So how important is this product to your community? It's the sustainability and our tradition. 
The way of they extract this gum is uh, it represents their traditions and their culture, a part of supporting their families. The chicle trees can be harvested once every three to seven years after the wounds hacked into the bark heal. But today there's a new threat to the Mayan economic and cultural mainstay, climate change. Y ahorita, con el tiempo... 50 years ago, we were able to extract 5 kilos of chicle, but nowadays with the global warming, we only are able to extract 1 kilo and a half. How does the change in temperature affect the tree? This problem is due to the pollution of factory, produced by factories, uh, fires that have been taken place here and in general by the pollution. The Mayan cooperative culture has the strong social structure and governance needed to prevent illegal logging and ensure the money from red projects goes to those who own the trees. At San Antonio Tuck, violators are banished from the collective. It's happened just once in the four years the Ejido has been getting money from the Mexican government to prepare for red. What needs to be improved do you think is to make this project even better? Bueno, pues este sumar sumarnos todos. They want more support from other people, other organizations. That's government, uh, NGOs, government, uh, particular people interested, mm-hmm. everybody. What happens support. if this program doesn't exist? What happens to your people? Pues eh, eh, se corre el riesgo de que las selvas desaparezcan. Eh, the forest can disappear. The forest can disappear. Ya usted, señor visitante, turista andante en Quintana Roo. Mi que tu malo saluda con un abrazo muy fraternal. Y le invita a que conozca mi caribe. The end of this climate summit in Cancun, Mexico, felt like deja vu. Folks wrangling, wheeling and dealing, deciding once more to decide the big stuff next year. But the climate itself didn't wait. It continues to change. Kiribati is a small Pacific island nation that's just six feet above sea level, and every day a bit more disappears. Anote Tang is the president of Kiribati. I asked him how he would sum up this summit. Well, I think it's important to emphasize that um, the time is running out. Not just for the, the wider question of the, the climate change uh, crisis, but I think there are countries now, and th- this would include uh, the most vulnerable, which are already feeling the impact of the, what is happening. Um, I was in Parliament last week, and I was getting requests, which have been happening virtually every Parliament, to, for government to provide protective seawalls, because buildings are on the verge of uh, being washed away. Uh, already some have been washed away, and... Uh, uh, some villages, communities have had to be relocated. Uh, and so these are all already happening. And so it's not about uh, tomorrow, things that are happen- going to happen, but it's about things that are already happening. In terms of what's happened here in Cancun, is it enough today for what needs to be done? I, there has to be agreement on addressing the more urgent needs of uh, those countries which are already being affected. Uh, if, that, uh, if that is not addressed, then... There's no point to the negotiations because it'd be too late for some of us. In terms of finance, um, Ban Ki-moon set together this panel, advisory panel, to come up with an international plan. Um, what do you think of this? Well, we were, a lot of pledges were made in Copenhagen. 
Uh, we did not sign the Copenhagen Accord because it did not uh, meet the requirements, the minimum requirements, which would ensure our survival. But we subsequently associated with it on the basis that it would trigger the flow of fast funds. Uh, nothing has flowed until now. And so we do need funds urgently to meet these uh, requirements. So wait a second. Here you are, the president of Kiribati, a country that is at best six feet above sea level. All this promise of money to help you deal with the problems. You need to build seawalls, but no money has come? Uh, I, th- I think that the, the urgency of the whole process is being uh, misunderstood. We're still negotiating, and I think uh, that was the point that I've been making all the time. It's not a negotiation for us. It's, a, it's an urgent bid for survival. And um, it, it's happening. We don't want to ha- allow it to happen in larger scale before it's too late for us and too costly if ever any work is going to be done to restore the integrity of the islands. Okay, well, thank you, sir. Anote Tan, president of Kiribati. You're very welcome, indeed. On the next Living on Earth, a prescription for global survival from one of the world's leading ecologists. Cut the calories. We are consuming over 80% of the planet's resources, even though we're only 20% of the world's population. We are the major predator on the planet. David Suzuki says it's time to realize more is less. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in a coastal lagoon in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. A hundred and eighty bird species live in the Rio Lagartos Biosphere Reserve, including Caribbean flamingos, herons, storks, and kingfishers. Over 140 migratory species visit as well, more than a quarter of a million birds amid the palms and mangroves and coastal dunes. Antonio Celis Murillo recorded this soundscape for the CD Bird Songs of Mexico. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sreese Kandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Souza, and Emily Guerin. Our interns are Nora Doyle Burr and Hannah Lyles. We had engineering help this week from Dana Chisholm. Special thanks to Gretchen Weber of KQED and Aguchi Anyaka of the Climate Change Media Program. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. And I'm Steve Kerwood from the Cancun Climate Summit, hasta luego. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.